Two weeks ago, two weeks ago, I preached a sermon about the Apostle Paul encountering a man named Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus. And not just did he encounter this man named Bar-Jesus, he looks at this man Bar-Jesus and calls him the son of the devil. Now those are kind of fighting words in most cultures when you call somebody the son of the devil. And then God did something. Paul didn't do it. God struck this false prophet, this Jewish sorcerer, struck him blind. And when I looked at that scene, what I saw was that true had confronted and collided with false. Because the Bible specifically said that this bar Jesus was a false prophet. And it said in the same text that Paul was a true prophet of God. True and false had collided. The governor that had been under the spell of this sorcerer became a believer. He watched this happen. He saw the true collide with the false, and he chose the true. He became a believer. Today, as we continue through the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas are going to Antioch. Paul does what he normally does when he enters a town. Most of you will pick up on it. He immediately, the first thing is he goes to the Jewish synagogue on the Sabbath, on a Saturday, and begins to preach Christ crucified to the Jews first. Yes, Paul was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Yes, but he is a Jew. And he loves his brothers and sisters, and he wants them to know the true about Christ. So he starts at a Jewish synagogue. He tries to persuade his brothers to believe Christ. And that's where we'll begin today. Acts chapter 13, verse 16. So Paul stood, lifted his hand to quiet them. He's in a Jewish synagogue in Antioch. He lifted his hand to quiet them and started speaking. Men of Israel, he said, and you God-fearing Gentiles, listen to me. The God of this nation of Israel chose our ancestors and made them multiply and grow strong during their stay in Egypt. Now, pause for a moment. Why is he talking about ancient Jewish history? Because at this point, that would have been ancient Jewish history. And yet he's talking about events that would have happened thousands of years before. The God of our ancestors chose us, chose us, out of Egypt, out of Egypt. Well, that's a long time ago from this encounter in a synagogue in Antioch. He is using Jewish history to teach truth. Now stay with me. Then with a powerful arm, he led them out of their slavery. He put up with them through 40 years of wanderings in the wilderness. Then he destroyed seven nations in Canaan. And gave their land to Israel as an inheritance. Now all the people in the Jewish synagogue surely know their own history. Surely they know that they were slaves in Egypt. And surely they know that Moses came and led them across the wilderness. And surely they know that God went in front of them and destroyed the seven nations that inhabited the promised land. And God gave that land to Israel. Surely they know that, right? So why is Paul using that to try to teach them about a Jewish Messiah named Jesus? Verse 20, 
All this took about 450 years. And after that, God gave them judges to rule until the time of Samuel, the prophet. Paul goes on to give these people of Antioch a Jewish history lesson. And you might read over it or think, well, so what? But he's doing it for a reason. He's using historical, irrefutable information to create a foundation of truth. The judges will, will come to the time of Samuel in their history. And then if you know Jewish history, the last judge was Samuel and something happened. Israel wanted a king. They weren't happy with having judges, spiritual leaders leading the nation. So they wanted a king. Why? Because all the other nations had kings. And we don't have a king, so God gave them King Saul. And then he gave them King David. And then Paul, now in this synagogue in Antioch, transitions from King David to a Jewish man named Jesus. Verse 23. And it is one of King David's descendants, Jesus, who is God's promised Savior of Israel. Notice what Paul is doing through the Holy Spirit. I want to say it again. He is using irrefutable history to explain the present reality of truth. This still works today. To, see, to allow the past, that which cannot be denied, that which is recorded and believed as truth, to present the truth of our present reality. Nobody's going to argue with him in that Jewish synagogue about the 450 years between Abraham and the deliverance in Egypt. Nobody's going to argue with him about King David and King Saul and about the wilderness wanderings. Nobody's going to argue. So he's establishing a baseline called truth. He is using the Bible to explain the Bible. He is using the word. It's recorded to explain a word. Paul, a Jew, is in a Jewish synagogue. And he's talking about Jewish David and about Jewish Jesus. Yes, he is an apostle to the Gentiles. He is preaching to Jewish people. But if you notice something, he's in a Jewish synagogue, so these these Jews, these Gentiles, God-fearing Gentiles, he calls them, they must have converted to Judaism or they wouldn't even be allowed in the synagogue. So there are Gentiles who had converted to Judaism in the audience, and he refers to them. From my perspective today, what I see is Paul using the Scripture to explain the Scripture. It still works. He obviously has their attention because he has talked about things they are familiar with. King David to Jesus, and now he is filling in the blanks using history, listen, as a physical illustration. Now, preachers do it today. Good teachers have always done it. Jesus did it. What? He told stories. He used illustrations. And the illustrations and the stories would make people understand Stand that where you're beginning is accepted truth. Using the beginning of accepted truth to take you to a revealed truth. Illustrations have always been powerful. I like to use illustrations. So let me use an illustration. 
a minister decided that he needed a visual illustration to prove a point. It would add emphasis to his sermon, so he has four worms in his sermon. Four worms were placed in four separate jars. The first worm was placed in a jar of alcohol. The second worm was placed in a jar of cigarette smoke. The third worm was placed in a jar of chocolate syrup. And the fourth worm was placed in a jar of good, clean soil. At the conclusion of his sermon, the minister reported the following results. The first worm in alcohol, dead. The second worm in cigarette smoke, dead. The third worm in chocolate syrup, dead. The fourth worm in good, clean, you ought to see your faces when I say dead. <laughs> the fourth worm in good, clean soul, he's alive! He's alive! So the minister asked the congregation, what can you learn from this demonstration, from this illustration? A little old woman in the back quickly raised her hand and said, as long as you drink, as long as you drink smoke and eat chocolate, you'll never have worms. <laughs> now I'm going to tell you, every illustration doesn't necessarily work. That is not the point he wanted to make. Paul is creating an irrefutable Jewish history, provable Jewish history, to announce the Messiah, who is from David, and he is Jewish. Will they get it? Will they understand it? Will it work? Not every illustration works. So I want to do something. I want to read to you what he says next. It's a little lengthy, but I want you to pay attention because it's really, really important today. Let's go to verse 24. Before he came, this is Paul talking to that Jewish synagogue. Before he came, reference to, uh, before he came, reference to Jesus, John the Baptist preached that all the people of Israel needed to repent of their sins and turn to God and be baptized. As John was finishing his ministry, he asked, do you think I am the Messiah? No, I am not. But he is coming soon. And I'm, I'm not even worthy to be his slave and to untie the sandals of his feet. Brothers, you sons of Abraham, and also you God-fearing Gentiles. Remember, he's in this Jewish synagogue. You sons of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, this message of salvation has been sent to us. The people in Jerusalem... And their leaders did not recognize Jesus as the one the prophets had spoken about. Instead, they condemned him. And in doing this, they fulfilled the prophet's words that are read every Sabbath. They found no legal reason to execute him, but they asked Pilate to have him killed anyway. What, when they had done all that the prophecies had said about him, they took him down from the cross and placed him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Now, now, Paul's in the story. Paul is a witness. When they had done all that the prophets had said, God raised him from the dead. Now, listen, Paul, I don't know if Paul was there at the crucifixion, but I can tell you, Paul saw the risen Christ. He met him on the road to Damascus. Nobody's going to look at Paul and say, well, you don't know, because he would say, yes, I do know. 
Because I met him. I saw the resurrected Lord. So as he's explaining this in the Jewish synagogue, he is a personal witness. Verse 31. And over a period of many days, he appeared to those who had gone with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to the people of Israel. And now we are here, me and Barnabas, in Antioch. And now we are here to bring you, what? This good news. The promise was made to our ancestors. And God has now fulfilled it for us, their descendants, by raising Jesus. This is what the second psalm. Now, he's going to use the Scripture to prove the Scripture. He's going back to Psalms chapter 2. And now the second psalm says about Jesus, You are my son. Today I have become your father. For God had promised to raise him from the dead, not leaving him to rot in the grave. He said, I will give you the sacred blessing I promised to David. Another psalm explains it more fully. You will not allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. This is not a reference to David. For after David had done the will of God in his own generation, he died and was buried with his ancestors, and his body decayed. No, it was a reference to someone else. And that's why Paul is in the synagogue. It is a reference of someone else. Someone whom God raised and whose body did not decay. Why did it not decay? Because it didn't stay in the grave long enough to decay. There was a resurrection. Central to the gospel. What's Paul doing in this church at Antioch? Central to the gospel is the resurrection of the dead. It changes everything. Church, you need to always come back to the fundamentals. Central to the gospel message is the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection cancels death 100% of the time. It is 100% effective. If a person dies from whatever means, if there is a resurrection of the dead, death has been conquered. 100%. This is big. Anybody think this isn't big? If one of you came up with the cure to cancer, if it was announced tonight on the news that somebody had found the cure to cancer, do you know how big it would be? He would be famous instantaneously. The world would know about this man. But the cancer cured will still lead to death. What if there's a cure to death? Central to the gospel. Central to the good news that Paul preached in Antioch. There is a resurrection from the dead. 100% effective. Who wouldn't want this good news? Who wouldn't want the cure to death? Then, now, you think it would be any less significant today than it was 2,000 years ago? What? Somebody has cured death. But there's a second point. Paul has revealed the resurrection, and now he will reveal the reason for the cross. He just revealed the resurrection. He just revealed the fact that he didn't rot in the grave. He didn't just, it's a bodily resurrection. It's not the resurrection of a spook, the resurrection of a ghost, the resurrection of some phantom spirit. No, this is a physical, bodily, you are going to be you resurrection. And then he's going to do the second part, central to the gospel, forgiveness of sin. Why was there a cross. 
Verse 38. Brothers, listen. We are here to proclaim that through this man, Jesus, through this man, Jesus, there is forgiveness for your sins. Everyone who believes in him is declared right with God. Something the law of Moses could never do. But be careful. Paul says, I'm here to declare the ultimate good news. There's a resurrection from the dead and there's forgiveness of your sins. But be careful. Be careful, you Jewish people. Why? Verse 40. Don't let the prophet's words apply to you. For the prophets, they said, look, you mockers, be amazed and die. For I am doing something in your own day, something you wouldn't believe, even if somebody came to your town and told you about it. What? There's a resurrection from the dead. There's forgiveness of sins. But be careful, you mockers. Be careful, you mockers, because the prophets announced in advance that not everybody's going to believe in the resurrection. Not everybody's going to believe that there's a possibility to have your sins wiped away. Be careful, you mockers. Today I proclaim the central theme of the gospel. Through Jesus, there is forgiveness of sins. Through Jesus, you can be made right with God. Through Jesus, you and I can make peace with God. And I know what some people think. Why do I need to make peace with God? Because He is holy, and we are not. He is righteous, and we are not. He is pure, undefiled, perfect, and we are not. We are by our own nature, the Bible says, His adversary. Why? Because we are not what He is. But through Jesus, we can be. Through Jesus, we can be made right with God. We can make peace with God. But it must be through Jesus. And then Paul says something that's going to make them stir. Oh, if he could just leave out the stirring part. But you can't. Because truth must always confront the false. He says something that's going to make them stir. He says, Jesus did what the law of Moses could never do. Uh-oh. Now you've offended us. Jesus is Jewish, but Jesus, Paul's message is Jesus did what the law could never have done. These Jews revered Moses, and they had dedicated their entire lives to obeying the law of Moses. And now Paul tells them that Jesus is greater than the law of Moses. Will they believe him? Here's where we're going today. All of that to ask this question. Will they believe the message? It seems pretty believable. It seems pretty optimistic. Who doesn't want the resurrection from the dead? Who doesn't want to have your sins forgiven so you stand before God at peace with God? A child of God. Who doesn't want that? But will they believe the message? Or will they become the mockers that the prophets talked about? Be careful, you mockers, for something will happen in your day that you won't even believe even if somebody tells you. Next verse, verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas left the synagogue that day, the people begged them to speak about these things again next week. What? That sounds positive. 
Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, and the two men urged them to continue to rely on the grace of God. Now, I want to tell you, if I just read those verses after that sermon, I'd say this was a success. They've been invited back next week. No one threw anything. They didn't try to kill them. They didn't drag them out of the city and stone them, leaving them for dead, which happens sometimes. Several times after I preach a sermon on Sunday, I'll see somebody uh, from another place during the week, and they'll say, how'd it go at Nineveh Sunday? And I said, well, they didn't throw anything. I read the book of Acts, and usually it was a good Sunday when they didn't throw anything. Reminds me of an interesting story. Several years ago, I was walking out of church, and some guy walks up to me, and he says, preacher, that's the worst sermon I've ever heard in my life. Okay. You have a nice day. Well, his wife, his wife follows him pretty close and says, oh, don't pay attention to him. He only says what, other, what he hears other people saying. <laughs> I made that up, by the way. <laughs> but I look at this story. You know what I see? They have to be optimistic. This is a radical message. This Jesus, this Jewish Jesus, is greater than the law of Moses, and they invite him back next week. Wow, this is pretty good. I wonder if Paul and Barnabas thought, this is going to be easier than we thought. The next Sabbath comes, and guess what? It's not easy. The mockers that the prophets proclaim, they show up. Verse 44. The following week, almost the entire city turned out to hear them preach the word of the Lord. But when some of the Jews saw the crowds, uh uh-oh, they were jealous. Why are they jealous? Because before this, they were kind of the central figures in the Antioch. And now there's these two new guys. And they're lifting up a new guy named Jesus. And this new guy, Jesus, they say is greater than the law of Moses. And we've built our whole life on this law. Being obedient to that law. And here's this Jesus. And they say, we're, we're, they're jealous. They're jealous. So they slandered Paul and argued against whatever he said. didn't matter what he said. We're just against you. The entire city of Antioch turned out, and guess what? Satan came with them. True and false are going to collide again. Do you think you can carry the gospel message today without opposition? Church, I'm asking you. I'm asking you. Do you today, look at what happens when Paul carries this wonderful good news. There's a resurrection from the dead. You can have your sins forgiven. You can have peace with God. Who doesn't want that kind of good news? And yet, immediately, they have absolute opposition. Do you think, church, that you can carry this same message out into the world and nobody will oppose you? You will face opposition. Satan has not stopped. Do you think Satan will stand by and watch you deliver the message of the resurrection? Do you think Satan will just stop opposing the forgiveness of sins? No. Why? You have to ask the question why. Because Jesus revealed it. He hates the truth. He has no truth in him. Thus he must oppose the truth. Let's face it. Paul has just revealed two things that should excite everyone. Then... And now, what? The first one again, resurrection. The 100% cure of death. And everyone in this room, we have something in common. We are all dying. 
There's a resurrection. Who wouldn't get excited about this? And the second thing is there's forgiveness of sins. You can make peace with God through the blood of Christ. You don't have to wait and see. You can know right now that God has taken my sins, placed them under the atoning blood of Christ. And as far as the east is from the west, they've been gone. Though they were as scarlet, now they are white as snow. He has buried them in the depths of the deepest sea to remember them no more. Who wouldn't want that? You don't believe it. The message and the mystery. It's a mystery why you wouldn't not only want it, why you could refute something that has such a historical basis. Scott Smith, Scott Newton Smith, spoke here last Sunday, did an incredible job. I had a chance to get to know him this past week, and I went to the session he did at the Anderson County High School. He said something. He said, you're not a sinner because you sin." You sin because you're a sinner. And I want to tell you, that's a beautiful picture of the reality of our condition. He said very clearly, and it's so simple, that you're not. We all are sinners, but we are not a sinner because we sin. That's not how it works. We are not a sinner because we sin. We sin because we can't help it. Because we're sinners. There's something broken on the inside of us. Something's fouled up. Something's messed up in our nature. All the children of Adam have it. But there's one who comes to fix it. He doesn't come to validate your sin. No, he comes to overpower your sin. This is good news. Who doesn't want to live forever? Now listen, if you told me I had to live forever in this body, we might debate a while. But who doesn't want to live forever in a body that doesn't age and doesn't decay and doesn't have cancer and never has to have a knee replaced or, 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 or shoulder surgery? Who, who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want peace with God? Knowing, knowing, knowing that one day when you stand before Him, rather than depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I don't know you. He would say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter, my child. Enter. So what's the problem? So what's the problem? They don't believe it. The message is clear. They don't believe it. Do you? Let me ask you a question. Do you, are you sure? Sitting in this room today, are you sure? Are you here because you're a believer or are you here because you're curious about believers? Well, either way, I'm glad you're here. I want you to know. I'm glad you're here. The prophet Isaiah prophesied this some 700 years before Paul ever went to Antioch. Some 700 years before him and Barnabas ever went to Antioch. Here's what he writes. Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? Some things haven't changed. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed His powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful. Who's he talking about? 700 years before the birth of Christ. He's talking about Jesus. You know what he says about him? There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance. Nothing to attract us to him. If you looked at Jesus as just a 
physical man would not be attracted to him. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. And what did we do? We turned our backs on him and we looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. There he is, the Jewish Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the way, the truth, and the life. We turned our backs on him. It's a mystery. Come on, let's admit it. It's a mystery how some people hear the gospel and believe, and other people hear the same exact gospel and they laugh and they mock. Ha 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 ha! You simple people. It's the same message, it's the same gospel. I've titled this sermon Message and Mystery because it's a mystery why some people refuse to believe the message. It's a mystery to me. Do you know why it's a mystery? Listen to this and see if you can see why it's a mystery. Now, I find this deeply interesting. What I'm about to read to you is the Apostle John, not Paul. I just read Paul's um, sermon at Antioch, I'm reading to you John's quote of the same Isaiah Scripture. Same Scripture. They're both talking about the same 700-year-old Scripture. Except John is talking about it in the beginning of the church age, the Apostle John. Listen to what he writes. John 12, 37. But despite all the miraculous signs Jesus had done. Physical evidence, right? Despite all the miraculous signs Jesus had done. And by the way, there were witnesses. Many witnesses. He didn't do them in secret. Despite all the miraculous things Jesus had done. Most of the people, not some, most of the people still did not believe in Him. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. You mean, you saw the miracle? Yeah, I mean, after watching four-day dead Lazarus come out of a grave, you still mock? Yeah, they still mock. Verse 38. Here's where it gets interesting. This is exactly what Isaiah, the prophet, had predicted. And he's going to quote the same verse that Paul quotes in Antioch. What? Lord, who has believed our message? I want to hold it up. To whom has the Lord revealed His powerful arm? But the people couldn't believe. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. But the people couldn't believe. I told you it's a mystery. For as Isaiah also said, the Lord has blinded their eyes and the Lord has hardened their hearts so that their eyes cannot see and their hearts cannot understand and they cannot turn to me and have me heal them. Isaiah was referring to Jesus when he said this because he saw the future and he spoke of the Messiah's glory. Some of the Jews at the synagogue that day couldn't see. You hear it? Isaiah said some of the people at the synagogue that day, they can't see. It's a mystery to me. Some people today can't see. It's a mystery to me. I'm not going to pretend like I understand it. One person hears the message of eternal life and forgiveness of sins and believes, and the next, next person hears the exact same words in exact same setting, and they refuse the message and become a mocker and a scoffer. It's a mystery to me. 
There is so much I don't know. And the older I get, the more I know how much I don't know. But I can tell you today what I do know. Jesus rose from the dead. There was a man who was dead. And they put him in the grave. And on the third day he got up. His body did not see decay. And on the third day he got up and he walked out of that grave. I believe it with everything inside of me. And I also believe that anyone who believes that Jesus is who he says he is will also experience the same thing Jesus experienced, a bodily resurrection. It's his promise. This is big, and I believe it. What is it? I believe in the resurrection. The blood of Jesus forgives sins, makes us right with God, makes us at peace with God. This is big. This is really big, and I believe it. Two fundamental truths. I believe in the resurrection, and I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe my sin can be removed totally, not partially, not a little bit, totally removed by the blood of Christ through faith. I can see this truth. I want you to hear what I'm saying. I can see this truth. I heard the gospel, and I believed it, all of it. One of the blessings that I count from God is this. I have never in my entire life struggled with this issue. Now, I have struggled with obeying God. I'm not acting like I haven't. But I have never struggled with the idea of the authority of Scripture. Since a child, I've always looked at this as God's Word. Since I was a child, I've always looked at this as the only physical source of absolute truth on this planet. As a child, even to today, never has there been a time in which I looked at this and said, I'm not sure if that's really God's Word. It never happened to me. I've never struggled with this. So when I hear the message, when I read the message, when I receive the message, I believe it. And I believe it because of this. I believe... This is God's Word. I don't think it's man's writing about God. I believe it's God's revelation of Himself to man. Does that describe you? Are you struggling with this message? Is it a mystery still to you today? The Bible says that the Lord has hardened the hearts of the Jews. I want to show you, the reason I wrote this sermon is this. I want to show you today physical evidence that you and I live in the fulfillment of this book. Right now, today. Maybe that'll help you understand how powerful these words are. That everything written in this book is going to happen exactly as it was written. And if I can show you today physical evidence proving that in our generation. What was Paul trying to do in that Antioch church? He was trying to use the physical, irrefutable physical evidence of Jewish history to prove the Messiah. The Bible says that the Lord has hardened the hearts of the Jews, Right? We just read it. For a season. Why? To allow the time of the Gentiles to take place. The time, listen, the time of the church. You're living in it right now. Paul reveals some of this mystery to, in the book of Romans. So let's go to Romans chapter 11. I want to tell you where I'm going. I'm going to show you that God is right now, today, fulfilling what I'm reading even though it was written 2,000 years ago. Romans 11, verse 7. So this is the situation. Most of the people of Israel, not all, most of the people of Israel have not found the favor of God. Now listen, most, 
Paul's a Jew, and he found it. Peter's a Jew, he found it. Right now, today, I know a guy in Tel Aviv named Ave Mizrachi. He's a Messianic Jew. He found it. But most, as a nation, as a people, most of the people of Israel have not found the favor of God they are looking for so earnestly. A few have. The ones God has chosen, it's a mystery. But the hearts of the rest, listen, church, they are hardened. As the scriptures say, God has put them into a deep sleep. Who, who are we talking about? Gentiles? No, we're not talking about Gentiles. We're talking about Israel. He has put them into a deep sleep. To this day, He has shut their eyes so they do not see and closed their ears so they do not hear. It's a mystery to me, but not to God. Can you see? Can you hear the message today? Because, you know, many of them can't. It's a mystery. So let's set that aside and ask you a question. Can you see today? Has your heart become so hardened that you can't hear today? Some people can't. Can you see? Can you hear the message today? Can you believe? And here's the test. Do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? Then you would never be afraid to die, right? 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 Doesn't that make sense? What can anybody do to you? What can anybody do to you? Well, they can kill you. Well, if you believe in the resurrection, that's already been fixed. Next. Do we really believe in the resurrection of the dead? It's really cheap talk, isn't it? It's a profound truth. I can tell you no one's going to be neutral on the issue of the resurrection of the dead. You don't almost believe in this. But when you do believe in this, it kind of transforms your whole life. Your worldview changes. No one's going to be neutral on this issue of forgiveness of sins. Either you're forgiven or you're not forgiven, right? You're not almost forgiven. You're not partially forgiven. Well, Lord, I was 50% forgiven. That doesn't make sense. So what about the Jews? What about Israel? What about then? What about now? Does the Bible reveal it? Can I show you today that this message is unstoppable, irrefutable? And you're living in the generation where it's being fulfilled? Romans 11, 11. Did God's people, Israel, stumble and fall beyond recovery? Of course not. They were disobedient. So God made salvation available to the Gentiles. Somebody say hallelujah. hallelujah. They were disobedient, so God did something. It's a mystery. So God made salvation available to the Gentiles but he wanted his own people to become jealous and claim it for themselves. You and I live in the time of the Gentiles. You know what the time of the Gentiles is? It's the time of the church. You're in it. I'm in it. And I got some good news, bad news. Right now, as of right now, we're in the time of the Gentiles. Though their hearts are hardened, Israel, the door is open for us to receive the gospel. Now, the bad news. I believe that the day is drawing short for the last day of the time of the Gentiles. I believe the Gentile church age is nearing its end. Do you know what the next verse says in Romans? This is what's coming next. Romans eleven twelve. 12. Now if the Gentiles were enriched because the people of Israel turned down God's offer of salvation, think how much greater a blessing the world will share when, not if, when they finally accept it. Something's going to happen 
in the future. After the end of the church age, after that day, something's going to happen in Israel. Do you believe this? Can you see it? Can you see the message, the mystery? Let me prove it to you. God has regathered the Jews from all over the world back to the land of Israel. 2,000 years, they were not a people. 2,000 years. They could have, should have been assimilated into the cultures of the world, but they were not assimilated into the cultures of the world. They never assimilated. They always kept themselves separate. Thus the shooting in Pittsburgh this weekend. Because they have refused to assimilate into the world's culture. They stand on the outside and many people hate them. Not to mention the fact that through them the Scriptures came. Through them the Messiah came. Through them are the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In our day, it's being revealed. In 1948, God did something to prove to those who have eyes to see that His Word is irrefutable. And we live in the generation where it's taking place. They have been regathered, but most of them still do not believe. Listen, I've been to Israel. I study this in great detail. They have been regathered. Seven million, more than seven million. I think when they were 500,000 in 1948, now there are more than seven million living in Israel. He has brought them from all the corners of the earth. Most of them have come back in unbelief. They still do not believe Jesus is their Jewish Messiah. They're still waiting on their Messiah. And yes, and yes, they are regathered to the same piece of land that I read about a few minutes ago. Can you see? Let's go back to Acts 13, 19. Paul's talking to the church in Antioch, or the synagogue in Antioch. And he's given the his Jewish history lesson, and he says, verse 19, Then he, God, destroyed seven nations in Canaan. And he gave those, the land of those seven nations in Canaan, he gave their land to Israel as an inheritance. And where do you think Israel lives now? In that land of the seven nations of Canaan. Who gave it to them? The United Nations? No. Who gave it to them? God. It's in our generation. Can you see it? Can you see the message? Can you see the mystery? Something amazing is taking place in our generation. Something happened on May 14th, 1948. God revealed the message is unstoppable. It's irrefutable. Can you see? Are you listening? Well, let's try this. So Romans 11.25, same chapter. Paul talks to a Gentile church. That'd be us, right? I want you to understand this mystery. Dear brothers and sisters, so that you'll not feel proud about yourselves, some of the people in Israel, some of the people of Israel have hard hearts, but this will last only until the full number of Gentiles comes to Christ. I don't know what day that is. I believe that day is the rapture of the church, by the way. When the full number of Gentiles, when the last Gentile comes in. If you're in the room today and you're the last Gentile holdout, I wish you'd come today. Some of the people of Israel have experienced a hard heart, but that will only last until the full number of Gentiles comes to Christ. And then something's going to happen. Verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved. 
As the scriptures say, the one who rescues will come from Jerusalem and he will turn Israel away from ungodliness. Who's coming from Jerusalem to turn them away from ungodliness? Who? Their Messiah. He's coming from Jerusalem. And this is my covenant with them. Who? Israel. I will what? I will take away their sins. The very thing he's offered you today, he's going to do for them on that day. Do you believe this? Many of the people of Israel, verse 28, are now enemies of the good news. And this benefits you Gentiles. Yet they are still the people he loves because he chose their ancestors. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For God's gifts and his call can never be withdrawn. Some of the Jews in Antioch heard the gospel from Paul and they got it. Right? Will you come back next week? Some followed and some did not. Either way, it was God's purpose to have God, Paul preach to the Jews first. And then he would go preach to the Gentiles. So let's go back to Paul in Antioch. Verse 44. The following week, almost the entire city turned out to hear them preach the word of the Lord. But when some of the Jews saw the crowds, they were jealous. So they slandered Paul and argued against whatever he said. Then Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and declared, It was necessary that we first preach the word of God to you Jews. But since you have rejected, since you have rejected our message... And judged for yourselves that you are unworthy of eternal life. We will offer it to the Gentiles. Do you realize you are recipients of this gift? Because you consider yourself unworthy of this gift of eternal life, we will offer it to the Gentiles. For the Lord gave us this command when he said, I have made you a light to the Gentiles to bring salvation to the farthest corners of the earth. The gospel message today is the light of the Gentiles, and it's really good news. To the farthest corners of the earth, I look, that's Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. That's us. So judge for yourselves today if you are worthy of this gift of eternal life. Judge for yourselves today this message of the resurrection and forgiveness of sins through the blood of Christ. Is this all a mystery to you? Even now, even right now, you can say, this is still a mystery to me. I can tell you what those Gentiles in Antioch did when they heard it. I can tell you what they did. Verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this message, they were very glad and they thanked the Lord for His message. And all who were chosen for eternal life became believers. Those chosen, those who had eyes to see, those who had ears that could hear, those who had a heart that was open to believe, receive, and obey, they became believers. Believers in what? Believers in the message. It was no longer a mystery. They didn't just keep it to themselves either. The Bible says it spread throughout the entire region. Why? Because who doesn't want good news? Okay, let me give you an example. Somebody calls you this afternoon and says, I got some really good news, and you agree it's really good news. What's the first inclination of your heart? Come on, come on. You got, I got to tell somebody. I can't hold it. What if there's a cure for death? Church, what if there's a cure for death? It's a, well, I'm not going to tell anybody about that. Why wouldn't you? Do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? What if there's a way for you to make peace with God? I mean, total peace with God. 
by forgiving your sins. Though they be as scarlet, now you're white as snow. Well, I wouldn't tell anybody about that. So let me wrap up. Where was Satan while all these Gentiles are coming to the life-saving faith of Jesus Christ in Acts 13? Where's he at? Did he give up? Will that liar ever give up? Let's go to verse 50. Then the Jews stirred up the influential religious women, the Jews who did not believe. They stirred up the influential religious women and the leaders of the city, and they incited a mob against Paul and Barnabas, and they ran them out of town. So they, Paul and Barnabas, shook the dust from their feet as a sign of rejection and went to the town of Iconium. And the believers were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Did you notice who Satan used? Influential religious women and the leaders of the town. Because they had clout. Political clout. Enough political clout that will shut you down. And Paul and Barnabas left and went to another town. So what did Paul and Barnabas do when they got ran out of Antioch? Did they look at each other and say, this is too dangerous work? Did they look at each other and say, well, I think we need to go back to Jerusalem. It's safe there. No, they just kept preaching. Why? The good news is so good news that you can't stop telling this kind of news. So they go to Iconium. And guess what? L listen, this is interesting. They do exactly what Jesus told them to do. If you go back to Matthew 10, Jesus gives some instructions that have application in this room today. Application for me. He says, if any household, this is what Jesus said, if any household or town refuses to welcome you or listen to your message, what am I going to do? What if you refuse this message? If any household or any town refuses to listen to you or your message, Shake its dust from your feet as you leave. I'll tell you the truth, the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah would be better off than such a town on Judgment Day. Did I tell there's going to be a Judgment Day? You're really going to want this resurrection of the dead on Judgment Day. You're really going to want this forgiveness of sins on that Judgment Day. And the message is the only way you're going to hear about it. It's a mystery to me. In Antioch, some were angry and running people out of town. It's a mystery to me. Some were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. It's a mystery to me. It was the same gospel that created both responses. It's a mystery to me. The gospel makes some people angry. I can tell you, I've experienced it firsthand. And the same gospel makes some people full of joy. It's a mystery to me. Do you know what separates these two people groups? The angry from the joy-filled? It's not Jews and it's not Gentiles. That ain't it. That's not it. Do you know the difference between the two? Some believe it and some don't. And there you go. It's a mystery to me. The message, the Word of God. Some believe it and some don't. In this room today, let's be honest. 
In this room today, some of you believe this is God's Word and some of you do not believe it's God's Word. It's a mystery to me. Because when I've studied this, I have found it to be perfectly accurate. Perfectly accurate. In fact, I've read no other book that changes my heart from the inside out. There's a lot of good books out there, but I've never seen a book that does what this book does when you read this book. One last perspective. Would you believe it if it came in audible form? I'm not talking about audible form, somebody reading the Bible to you. No, I'm talking about behind me, there's this big glowy thing, and the glowy thing speaks a big voice. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Would you believe it then? Or would you say, but Bill Nye said. Now, you probably would believe it if it came in a big, deep voice from the heavens, right? Are you sure? What if you saw, what if you went outside this building and there's this big, great glowing light in the sky and from the glowing light, not only do you hear, but you can see the source of great power. Would that work? Did any of you see Christopher Columbus leave Spain? Did any, I don't, we've got some old people in the church, but I don't think anybody's quite that old. But you know what? We tell everybody, you don't have any trouble telling anybody that Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. You're okay with that. Why? Because there were witnesses. And the witnesses wrote it down. And those witnesses didn't sacrifice their life to write the story of Columbus. And you've got witnesses who talk about the resurrection of the dead. And they sacrificed everything they had. Even their own lives they laid down because this was so true to them. And yet you believe the story of Columbus. You never saw Columbus. But you hold it as truth. Did anybody in the room audibly hear Lincoln's Gettysburg Address? No. None of you. But you read it and you believe it. Why? Because there were witnesses and the witnesses wrote them down. And nobody had to risk their life to write down Lincoln's words at Gettysburg. Paul was a witness to the resurrection. Everybody listen to me. Today I have read to you witness testimony of the resurrection of the dead and the forgiveness of sins. He met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And if you refute his witness testimony, you have turned your back upon the message of the resurrection and the forgiveness of sins. You did it. You did it. God didn't do it. You did it. People today will believe almost anything. It's the crazy thing about the American culture that's amazing to me. People today will believe almost anything. You'll look at your phone and say, hey Siri, and ask a question, and you believe her. And I think down deep she's nuts. <laughs> Just ask her something serious. Or maybe you, instead of Siri, you go to Google, and you go to Google, and you type in Google, and, what's it, and you, it immediately says, well, yeah, I know. I know. Or, or you just go to the Internet and search something, and you just, yeah, it says so on the Internet. You believe all that stuff. And yet there is witness testimony for 2,000 years. People have sacrificed everything they have to translate this from Hebrew to English and to translate this. I've gone back and studied those people that translated 
uh, during the time of the Gutenberg press and how they were persecuted. Many of them just died. They were burned at the stake for, for translating this book. And you don't believe this. I believe what I hold in my hand is the only physical source of absolute truth and it delivers the message of the resurrection of the dead and that's really big and it delivers a message about how I can stand before God forgiven. And this is really big and I cannot hold it to myself. And if you believe it, you cannot hold it to yourself. The Word of God has been written down and you have a copy. The message is clear. So today, in this place, I preach Christ crucified. I make no apology. I preach the message and I preach the mystery. Today I preach the resurrection. Today I preach the forgiveness of sins. Do you believe this message? The reality is some of you will and some of you won't. Sometimes I have to shake the dust off and sometimes they believe it. But I'm going to keep preaching. i tell you what I want to preach. I want to preach to people who want to know. I want to preach to people, listen, I want to preach to people who didn't come to church for a 20-minute feel-good nothing. I want to preach to people who know the value of this treasure of the resurrection of the dead. I want to preach to people who believe that without the forgiveness of sins, we are eternally separated from God in a prison called hell. And He has mercifully given us eternal life instead. I want to preach to people who believe so that those people can preach to people so that they might believe this was the design of the church. Disciples who make disciples. So today, I want to read this final scripture. Colossians 1.25. And why? Why? Because I'm going to tell you, I take this personally. I would like for all of you to take this personally. Here we go, verse 25. God has given me the responsibility of serving His church by proclaiming His entire message. God has given me the responsibility of serving His church by proclaiming His entire message to you. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed. It's been revealed to God's people, for God wanted them to know the riches and the glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. Until the full number of Gentiles comes in, and then the door's going to close suddenly. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing in His glory. I'll ask Chad to come out for the invitation. Do you believe in the resurrection? Do you believe in forgiveness of sins? Do you believe that we live in the time of the Gentiles? And that one day that door will close. And if you're in Christ, you will walk through that door as it closes. And if you're not in Christ, you'll be on the outside of the door knocking. You will not go in. You will not go in. So today we're going to offer an invitation. The invitation is believe. 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 If you are a believer today and you know that you know that you know that you know that your sins are forgiven, you know that you know that you know that you know that there's a resurrection of the dead and it belongs to you, then this is your time to celebrate. Let's celebrate. Why don't we celebrate? 
But if you don't know, this is your chance to know. Come forward. Come forward. The altar's open. Let's stand. Just the sun.